Well, thanks very much for the invitation uh, to come and be here today. Nine years, well done to those who've helped organise that over the years, and what a great thing, not only for Launceston, but the north of the state as well, um, in terms of being able to have a, a time like this, opening up the Bible together, and there's something great about I mean, I won't particularly be talking about bacon, barbecues, and teaching sons to kick Aussie rules footies as part of my teaching and application. They're not particularly man sermons, I suppose, but there's something great about having men together, as men together, talking together, sharing together, listening to God's word together, being shaped together, which is just a terrific thing that um, in many churches, sadly, uh, men are absent from the churches and they send off the children and maybe the wife to church, maybe the men are there frowning up the back um, and, uh, and leaving as soon as they can to go and watch the telly or something. But instead here we have men who as part of their masculinity, as part of their uh, lives, are seeing God's word as part of who you are and part of what it means to, to live your life well. So it's, it's great to be here and doubtless it is a great benefit for the churches and the families across the north of Tassie. Um, I want to say a special thank you to those who have over the years shown great interest and prayerfulness and even generosity to the work on campus in Hobart. It really is just a terrific thing to have partners together in that evangelistic work. It's a hard work, as you know, doing ministry and evangelism in Australia. It's, uh, as one person has described, a little like ploughing concrete at times. I sometimes feel like I'm there talking to people on campus about cassette tapes. It's not that they're against cassette tapes, they're just completely disinterested, they're just irrelevant to their lives. It's, it's hard work um, and yet God is doing work on the campuses of Australia, both in reaching uh, the nations who are coming to our country from the Middle East and from China and from elsewhere, but still doing work even amongst Australian-born students and still reaching them and every year we rejoice with the angels in heaven when we see people come to faith who otherwise would never have heard the gospel. It's terrific, hard, slow, but still glorious work. Um, also, for those who are involved in and prayerful for these networks that Mark mentioned, like the Vision 100 network here in Tasmania um, and the Geneva Push network around Australia, it's slow work. It's hard work. So many of the church planting work and evangelism work um, is, is bitter and slow there, there, are, there are churches that are tried and failed, and even the ones that are succeeding, you might say, um, you, you zoom into them and you see a lot of struggle, a lot of hardship, a lot of slow work. And yet, Christ is still making true on his promise that he'll build his church, and he's building his church. In, in pockets of churches around our state, new people coming to church, coming to faith in our churches, isn't that a wonderful thing? Uh, even as the, um, the externally religious are dwindling away and people who never had a true saving faith are now living that out more consistently, we are actually seeing not the decline of genuine Christianity, but its survival and its vibrancy. Yeah? <laughs> and and it's, it, the decline is often in the liberal church. You, know, you hear about the statistics about the church declining in the liberal church, in the, um, the ceremonial churches... But in churches where we open up the scriptures and let it speak to our lives, the message of the gospel, we're seeing life. And we're seeing, you know, in, in the Vision 100 network in Tasmania, but then through the Geneva Push network around Australia, pockets of churches in old church buildings, using it in the afternoon, in community halls and life-saving clubs and, and all sorts of cinemas, uh, churches of, of young people, of new migrants, of, of people who've never 
had family members in the church for generations meeting around the world. It's really exciting. Slow work, hard work, but wonderful. So I'd be praying for those things. Um, and if you want to hear more about any of them, I'd, I'd love to share that, that kind of stuff with you. In our session, as Mark said, we're looking at, um, at particular, you could call it the doctrine of revelation, how God reveals himself, the teaching about how God speaks to us. And we're celebrating the Bible Society and Scripture Union's anniversaries, societies committed to the Word of God. And the Reformation, which a mark of the Reformation was the repositioning of God's Word, the Scriptures, at the centre of the church's life. It's not the Bible plus tradition, the Bible plus institution, the Bible plus papal decrees, but lifting the Bible up to its highest place, Scripture alone, sola scriptura, as the word of God to our world, the supreme authority for our world. And so in keeping with that, we're looking at this theme. I'm not going to do an exposition of Psalm 33, which Nathan read for us. None of these three will be verse-by-verse expositions, but rather they'll be thematic, topical, looking at three planks of what it means for God to speak to us. Yeah? Firstly, then, the very nature of our God, that our God is a speaking God. Isn't that a great thought? Just stop and remember again. There is a God out there. That's a wonderful thing we take for granted. There's a God out there. There's a meaning. There's a purpose. There's a sense to the world. There's a God. I can wake up in the morning and hit the alarm off and and not just go, it's all meaningless. But I can wake up and hit the alarm and go, I'm in a world that has a purpose. There is a God. And more than that, I can know what the purpose is. He has spoken. He is not silent. He is knowable. And so I can know what life is all about, and I can live my life aligned with that. There is a God. He is there, and he's not silent. That's such an important theme. It's important as we talk with our brother or our uncle or our workmate who's not a Christian... Because this is the basis of Christian religion, Christian faith. And so we can help them know what it is we believe. There is a God. He's not silent. But this is also so important for you and I as Christians. For this is our Christian spirituality, if you want to use those words. The Christian spirituality is hearing God's words. There is a God. He's not silent. And so we live out our religious life by listening Hearing God's words. And our Christian ministries and churches ought to be those which relay, re-speak God's words. So then for this first session, four points that we'll look at together. There is a God. God is personal. God is interpersonal. And fourth, God speaks to us. There is a God. God is personal. God is interpersonal. And fourth, God speaks to us. First then, there is a God. Of course, it's the foundational plank of being a Christian, that that we believe in a God who is there. Yeah, But more than just the foundation of our religious beliefs, if there's a God, that's the foundation of everything. God is the ground of all that is. Everything that exists and everything that can be thought or done rests on the being of God. 
And so with that brother-in-law or that workmate or boss who's the sceptic and the atheist, we need to say to them, our belief in God is not just a God hypothesis, as the atheist Richard Dawkins puts it. It's not that we kind of have added in God as an extra idea that helps us explain this or that thing. No, no, no. Rather, we need to say, we need to do like um, the spin around so we go, no, actually, everything begins with God. If there's a God, he comes first, before, beneath everything else. Yeah? That's the, you know, the Copernican revolution, that point when humans began to reflect on astronomy and realise the Earth isn't the centre of the universe. They began to look at Venus through the telescope and see that it had phases like the moon and began to then go, hang on a second, maybe the sun is at the centre. And, and we're just out here circle. Well, imagine what that was like for people to slowly begin to go, oh, whoa, whoa, <laughs> we're not at the centre of the universe. We're just out here. The same thing has to happen when you realise there's a God. It's no longer I'm at the centre of the universe or humanity's at the centre of the universe, but I thought I was... And then suddenly I realise, no, God is at the centre of the universe. I revolve around him. We have to try and convey that, I think. And I find that working with uni students as well as relating with my peers and friends and family. I need to say that if, if the religion thing is true, then it is central, it is first, and, and we are... Because the, 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 the atheist habit of mind kind of says, let's try and pretend that we, we just opened our eyes and then what is rational? That's how sort of a Richard Dawkins thinks, is, is to go, what was rational to believe? If I just suddenly opened my eyes and then looked around, what would be scientific and reasonable to believe? Yeah? What could I be sure of? And then they slowly try and build up a view of the world. There's a place for that kind of rational thinking, but it is very limited. And, and, and if you ever sort of try and um, build much on it, you can't build much on that foundation. Yeah? As a starting point, more, it's actually rigged. You're kind of begging the question. Do you know what begging the question means? Uh, we often use beg the question to say, um, uh, that makes me ask a question. You know, we say, um, oh, I can see some clouds over there, which begs the question, it's going to rain soon. Is it going to rain soon, you know? That's not quite what begging the question means. Begging the question means to assume something in your argument, yeah? And so it's a little bit like, if I asked you, um, you know, the famous kind of uh, awkward question, when did you stop beating your wife? What an what a awful question to ask, because how do you answer it? I, I hope here uh, that you would say, well, I can't answer that question, because it's not a question of when I stopped. I never started. I hope that's true. I never started. You've begged the question, you see. You've assumed. You've assumed something in the asking of the question. Well, in that same way, an atheist begs a question. By beginning their whole argument by starting with human beings and what we can rationally know, they've kind of put the human thinker first. They've begged a question. And so everything that seems reasonable to them from that starting point is all rigged. 
And so sooner or later we need to say to people, listen, if there's a God, then God comes first. He is the starting point for everything else we know. It's like, just like we believe in the external world or in ourself, so also God is a starting point of everything else. Yeah, look at evidences and reason and rationality, yes. But they're kind of more evidences for, not proofs of. Let me show you this from the Bible. You see, when the Bible begins, Genesis chapter 1, come with me back there, Genesis chapter 1, we don't get the Bible beginning by saying, in the beginning was human rationality. And human rationality said, now what's reasonable to believe? Um, And then here's evidence number one to believe in God. Evidence number two. It doesn't begin that way, does it? But rather the Bible from the very beginning, and the same is true for every book, it begins by Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created... From the very get-go, it says, the starting point is there always was a God. And if you don't start from that starting point, you've begged the question, everything is already off-rigged, skewed, off to the false start. The Apostle Paul does the same thing in Acts 17. If you can get there quick enough, you can see that. As he speaks to um, the philosophers in Athens, uh, he doesn't again begin with sort of evidences to say, oh, look, now I want to begin with you by saying that I believe in a God. and Let me give you the evidences. No, no, no. As he speaks to them, he actually begins, well, if you can get there soon enough, uh, you can read along with me, otherwise I'll read out to you. In Acts chapter 17... As Paul speaks to the philosophers, he says, Man of Athens, I see in every way you're very religious. I walked around, looked at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown. I'm going to proclaim to you, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and doesn't live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation on earth and so on. He starts, and we have to start saying, look, really in the end, to understand Christianity, to understand the world, you've got to begin with God and build everything up from there. That's wonderful news that there's a meaning to the world, a ground to being, an order to things. But you're talking to your brother-in-law, you're talking to your workmate, and they say, but I don't think that's where you begin. I'm not convinced there's a God. Well, that's what we see spoken about in Romans chapter 1. Come across with me there to Romans chapter 1. Verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men, Romans 1.18, who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, 
and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Not only is God first, but actually we have shut him out. We are actually suppressing that truth, verse 18. We know it, but then don't glorify him, but darken our hearts, verse 21. We, verse 23, exchange the glory of God for false gods. Not only is there a God, and you must start with that, but also human beings are ignoring God and silencing him. And so we must bear that in mind too. And all this means, right, as I talk with someone who's not a Christian, um, I need to say, look, here here are these evidences. We can talk on that level, right? We can discuss about did Jesus rise from the dead. We can look at the evidences for the reliability of the Bible. Um, We can critique atheism. All these things, sure. But in the end, you've got to get underneath that and say, look, to be honest, if there's a God, he comes before your feeble mind. And if there's a God, your mind has actually been darkened to him and you don't want him to be there. And you will never fairly wrestle with the God of the Bible if you're standing back here going, well, prove to me that he's there. You're begging the question. You're rigging the whole thing. For you to fairly, that's why you have to say to someone, to fairly um, assess Christianity, you've got to at least kind of press pause on your frame of reference and ask deeply, fearfully, openly, what if? What if God is there and he made me and I'm guilty before him and I'm running away from him? What if? To pray, God, if you're there, show me what is clearly there, what is clearly seen, verse 19 and 20, that I'm suppressing yeah? And until you do that, in a sense, you won't see and you won't be convinced because your back is turned. Yeah? And that means also for us, those of you here perhaps who are the skeptic, that could be for you. You're, who knows why you're here? Maybe you're going through the motions of being a Christian and Christian friends are all you've ever known and so you're swept up in it. But in your heart of hearts, you In the end, it's got to come down to the, am I willing to let God be at the center of the universe and realize I may not want him to be God and honestly say to God, Lord, if you're there, show yourself. Yeah? But it means every day for us as Christians. The more we switch things around so that we put our opinions and preferences and ideas first, the more we can slowly suppress God, silence God, push him away. And then don't be surprised if doubts grow. There is a God. And if there's a God, he comes first. Now, from this point on, things get a little less abstract. So thank you for bearing with that slightly uh, uh, heavy start. For secondly, God is personal. For the God who is there is not just a philosophy idea. He's not just a um, force that created the world, a philosophical idea. He's personal. Think with me about the kinds of metaphors and descriptions used for God in the Bible. He is father, bridegroom, king, warrior, 
shepherd, helper, personal descriptions. It's not just energy, force, ocean, light, but king, lover, father, helper, yeah? And when the Bible describes God, think of the kind of words it uses. Yeah, it does say that God is holy, omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing, yes. It says, though, God is everlasting, yes. You could call those the, the incommunicable attributes, the things about God that make him totally different to us, yeah? But the Bible also describes God in things such as loving, gracious, angry, just, jealous, good. You could call those things the communicable attributes, the things that we share in. We can be good as God is good. We can be loving as God is loving. Personal things, yeah? Islam doesn't really have that. In Islam, for example, when they speak of Allah as merciful and just, again and again the Quran says Allah is just and merciful, just and merciful. If you drill into what the Muslim means by that, um, if, you, if you push a Muslim on that, maybe you, you're friends with someone who's a Muslim or converted to Islam, or you meet someone in the workplace or in your travels who's a Muslim, just push them, keep pushing them and say, but what do you mean by merciful? I mean, we Christians you know, have it, but I'd be interested, what do you mean? And in the end, what the Muslim means by merciful and just is kind of fate. Allah will do what he will do anyway, and he calls that merciful and just. When what Allah will do anyway happens to benefit you, we call it merciful. When he happens to do what hurts you, we call it just. But there's nothing personal in those descriptions. There's much too much of a determinism in Islamic religion. They're really just names to describe the way he does what he'll do anyway. This idea of a personal God is, is, is quite surprising, in the sense that Christians mean it. Because as, as we go on to read through Scripture, we see also that the way God is described is, is with metaphors of kind of mind and emotion. He reasons, he rejoices, he angers, he regrets, he has compassion, he's pleased. Now, God does those things in a very different way to we human beings. We're physical, aren't we? And emotional in a way that when we love, uh, we feel all sorts of physical experiences, don't we? You know, that there's, a, there's emotional and, and, and um, uh, psychological experience. You know, God's very different to humans. We mustn't imagine him just to be a, an enormous human being. You know, the way God loves or angers or grieves is, is very different to us. But the Bible still uses those descriptions so often. It might be different, but it's also, in some sense, the same. God is personal, the scriptures tell us, again and again and again. And it celebrates his free personality, actually. Come with me to Psalm 115. Psalm 115, verse 3. And we'll just look at a few verses just quickly that speak about the free personal activity of God. Psalm 115, verse Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. 
but the idols made of silver and gold are made by the hands of men. They have mouths but can't speak, eyes but can't see, ears but can't hear, but noses and can't smell, and so on. But God is in heaven and he freely does whatever pleases him. Or across to Daniel chapter 4, we see a similar kind of thing said about God there. His free personal nature, Daniel chapter 4. Daniel 4, verse 35. Speaking about God's greatness compared to mere human rulers like Nebuchadnezzar, we read in uh, Daniel 4 and verse 35. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. God does, the Lord does, as he pleases. With the powers of heaven and the peoples of earth, no one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Free personal God. Romans 11.33, again, speaks similar into the New Testament. Romans 11, verse 33. Romans 11.33, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counsellor? Who's ever given to God that God should repay him? God is not, if you like, a... He's not like the uh, Islamic God who is, in a sense, working out a almost fatalistic plan, determined, almost mathematically determined will. No, the God of Scripture is a free person. It's not that everything he does he has to have done. You go, oh, well, God made Launceston because he had to. It was necessary. (laughs) God made uh, swallows and sparrows and pelicans because he had to. He freely chose a free, eternal, divine person who chooses and wills and acts and creates. God is there. God is personal. And as a personal God, he is knowable. Back to Acts 17, that passage we just read before. Acts 17, we read about God making the world in Acts 17. But notice then how he speaks about his purpose in making the world. Verse 26, Acts 17, 26. From one man, God made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them, the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As one of your own poets has said, we are his offspring. God made things and ordered things so we can know him, reach him, find him, know him as his children, live and move in him. God is not just a force or a riddle or an energy or a mystery like in Eastern religions. If that was true... We, don't, we can't really say we know God, we just experience God or sink into God. Yeah? But God is personal, loving, good, gracious, free. We can know that God. He, he orders all things that we can reach out and find him. In fact, as we'll see, he speaks to us so that we can hear him and understand him. At the centre of the universe is a person. Personhood. And that, by the way, means that we as Christians care deeply about people. 
We care deeply, deeply about human beings and persons because at the centre of the universe is a person. For a Buddhist or an atheist, at the centre of the universe is impersonality, is forces and energies. For, for an atheist or a Buddhist, uh, personhood is accidental. It's, it just happened for a little bit. All of a sudden there were people. You know? for, for a Hindu or a Buddhist, in fact, personality is a bad thing. When, when the, the world fell into illusion, all these people sprung up and the goal of religion is to escape that back into impersonality. But for Christians, at the centre of the universe is God, a personal God. And so people don't just matter incidentally to us, they, they matter foundationally, fundamentally to us. Here's a little picture of what that looks like for Christian spirituality by the Melbourne theologian Peter Adam. He says, yep, Christian spirituality is focused on Jesus and based on the grace of God and is a grateful response of joy rather than a spirituality of uncertainty. But more than that, it's a spirituality for ordinary people, not a spiritual elite. It's open to the world and what we call secular work and duties. And it's able to engage with the family as a unit of spiritual development. And because of the invention of the printing press, Christian spirituality has become greatly committed to education. It's a literate spirituality, able to engage everyday people in spiritual formation. Our faith drives us to care about everyday people in everyday life, for we serve a personal God. There is a God. God is personal. More, thirdly, God is interpersonal. The Trinity, in other words. That in God... We find three persons in eternal relation. In Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God, we read. But notice how the passage goes on to describe the God who creates. In beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then you'll see in verse 2 there that in in the formless, uh, dark, empty world, the Spirit of God hovers over the waters. And then in verse 3 we read that God says, let there be light. God, the creator, by his spirit, through his word. Speaker, spirit, word, right in the very first verses. Yeah? It's interesting. Even in verse 26, as we read of the creation of humanity in this chapter, God speaks, let us make people in our image, which is curious. A same sense of God as, as three persons in relation is just assumed everywhere in the New Testament. You don't just need to look to verses that prove the Trinity, you see. You need to look at the whole pattern of the New Testament, almost on every verse. It just speaks in terms of, like we just see there, God, a speaker, spirit, word. We say Father, Son, Spirit. For example, at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 28, the Great Commission, right? Matthew 28. As, as Jesus gives the Great Commission, what he says is um, that when you baptise, you are to baptise, verse 19, in the name, Matthew 28, verse 19, of Father, Son, and Spirit. Baptise people in the name of Father, Son, and Spirit. Or in 1 Corinthians 12, when the Apostle Paul speaks about spiritual gifts, again, just the assumption, the way of thinking is uh, Father, Son, and Spirit. 
or Lord, Spirit, God is the way he words it there. In verse uh, 4 of 1 Corinthians 12, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. Different kinds of service, but the same Lord Jesus. Different kinds of working, but the same God the Father. All through, every page almost, Father, Son, Spirit, Lord, Spirit, God. Uh, it's, you see it especially clear in John's Gospel. Come with me to John. Uh, get your Bibles out, John chapter 14. And you see this, uh, this trinity of interpersonal um, existence in our God. John chapter 14 and verse 6. John 14 and verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. And Philip says, show me the Father in verse 8. And Jesus says, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Down to verse 15. If you love me... John 14, verse 15, you will obey what I command and I'll ask the Father and he'll give you another counsellor, the Spirit of truth. The world can't accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and he'll be with you. I will not leave you as orphans. I, Jesus says, will come to you. When the Spirit comes to you, I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live, you will live. On that day, you'll realise that I am in my Father, Jesus says, and you are in me and I am in you. Whoever uh, has my commands and obeys them is the one who loves me and who loves me will love, be loved by my Father. Come across to 15, verse 9. 15, verse 9. As the Father loved me, so I loved you. Now remain in my love. And if you obey my commands, you'll remain in my love as I obey my Father's commands and remain in his love. Verse 26. When the counsellor comes, who I send to you from the Father, the Spirit who goes out from the Father will testify about me. And last of all, 16 verse 12. I have much more to say than you can bear now, 16 12, but when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He won't speak on his own. He'll only speak as he hears and he'll tell you what's yet to come. He'll bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine and that's why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. All through these verses you see, Father, Son, Spirit. And what the Father says, the Son says. And where the the Son is, um, there the Father is. And where the Spirit is, there the Son is. One God, all that makes the Father God, the Son is. Everything that the Son is that makes him God, the Spirit is. Wherever the Father acts, the Son is present. Wherever the Spirit acts, the Father is present. One God. And yet the Father's not the Son. And the Father's not the Holy Spirit. And the Son's not the Holy Spirit. One God and yet three persons. The Father knows the Son. The Son knows the Father. They love each other. They speak to each other. They hear each other. You see, it's not that um, uh, there was a God and then God made the world and all of a sudden there was all of us. And so God started to love. He said, oh, now there's John. I I want to love John. 
And so it was only at the point in which he made the world that he began to, began to love. If that was true, then love is not part of God's nature. Power kind of comes before love. Love is a later thing. But if what we see here is true, because what we see here is true, that in God himself is the loving relationship, in his very being is this personhood of Father, Son and Spirit loving and hearing and delighting in one another, then in God himself is love. Before any of us existed, God was loving Father, Son and Spirit at the heart of the universe is not just power and justice, but love. And so to love others, to be concerned for others, is to live in light with reality. To be truly real, man, get real. (laughs) To be truly real, to be truly human, let alone to be truly Christian, is to love others. It's the foundation of the world, of the universe, of all that is. Is not just a person, but an interpersonal God of three persons in loving relationship. We don't just be kind and loving because we should. We don't just be kind and loving um, uh, because it's um, compassionate. We be kind and loving because that's the very nature of what it is to exist. (laughs) That's the very nature of the universe, to be concerned for others. As the the son seeks not his glory, but the glory of the father. Yeah? And so that reality should go right down into our everyday lives... That if we really say that at the centre of the universe is a person and at the centre of the universe is a trinity of love, then that means I cannot, you and I, cannot be curt, dehumanising, rude people, can we? If we believe that God is personal and God is love, then we must be kind, considerate people if we are to be living in the light of the things we say we believe. That means our dealings with clients and, uh, and colleagues must be loving and kind, not short, blunt, or even slightly cruel. That means our dealings with our children, if we have them, with our wife, if we have them, with our neighbours. Our dealings should be loving, kind, considerate, Because it's the very nature of the world. It's the very nature of our God. As we meditate on these mind-blowing realities about the nature of God, it must shape our sense of who we are, the way we live. Because we see in God himself that he is personal, that he is speaking. Yeah? God in his very nature is word, is speaking, is relationship. God is not mute in and of himself, but he is essentially eloquent, articulate, communicating. So last of all then, there is a God. God is personal. God is interpersonal. 
And last of all for this session, God speaks to us. In Genesis chapter 1, God speaks the world into being. Let there be light, and there was light. Let there be land. Let there be greater and lesser lights. Let there be vegetation. Let there be birds and fish. And then he makes us, the human race, and then he doesn't just speak us into being, let there make man in our image, in our likeness, but he also speaks to us. And so Genesis 1.28, God blessed man and the woman and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. And then the rejection of God, the rebellion against God is what? Well, why in Genesis chapter 3, the tempter comes, the serpent comes and questions God, the speaking God. Questions God's word. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, The serpent says to the woman, did God really say? The marvel of Israel, the the miracle of God's mercy in Abraham and then in Israel as a whole, is that they had the words of God, that God spoke to them. Come across to Deuteronomy chapter 4, and we see the celebration of the miracle of Israel and their great delight... Deuteronomy chapter 4, that they have the word of God. Hear, O Israel, the decrees and the laws I'm about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land, the Lord, the God of your fathers is giving you. Do not add to what I command you. Do not subtract to it, but keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. Verse 6, observe them carefully, for this will show wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about these decrees and say, surely this is a great nation, a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near to us when we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm setting before you today? Only be careful. And watch yourselves that you don't forget the things your eyes have seen or let them slip from your heart. And then verse 15. You saw no form of any kind on the day the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. So watch yourselves. Don't make idols for God spoke to you. God spoke to humans. They questioned his word. He gave his precious word to Israel and that was their delight. And then all of this reaches its climax in the coming of Jesus, our final Bible verse, John chapter 1. For in John chapter 1, we get all this pulled together and we read there that the speaking God from all eternity was the Word. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. God made the world by his Word. But verse 14, the Word became flesh. And made his dwelling among us. We've seen the glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The precious jewel we have, brothers and sisters, is God's word, his living word, his very self revealed to us. God's come to us and shown us as he is. When we meet God in his word, we don't meet 
God dressed up and disguised, we meet God as he is, the Father speaking by his Spirit in his Son. We're not left guessing. We're not left to our traditions and philosophies. And so that means Christian spirituality is a word spirituality. The way we worship our God and grow in our spiritual lives is by listening to his word. That's why it's great that you're coming here to worship today by doing this hard work in the word of God. That's how we honour God, by listening hard to his word. That's how we grow close to God, by meditating on his word. Our attitude to the word is our attitude to God himself. Our treatment of the word reflects our treatment of God himself. Our encounter with the word is our encounter with God himself. Christian spirituality is a word spirituality. The worshipper that God delights is the one who trembles at his word. Oh, someone dropped in my pigeonhole, I don't know how, but an advertisement for a um, Tasmanian event, um, uh, a Christian meditation event. Um, and it speaks this way about Christian spirituality. Sit down. Sit still and upright. Close your eyes lightly. Sit relaxed but alert. Silently, interiorly, begin to say a single word. We recommend a prayer phrase, Maranatha. Recite it as four syllables of equal length. Maranatha. Listen to it as you say it. Maranatha. Gently but continuously. Maranatha, Maranatha. Don't think or imagine anything, spiritual or otherwise. If thoughts or images come, these are distractions to the time of meditation. (laughs) On the back, it has a quote. The important aim in Christian meditation is to allow God's mysterious and silent presence within us to become more and more not only a reality, but the reality which gives meaning and shapes the purpose of everything we do. The camp has a cosmic walk, times of silent mindfulness, listening and seeing, at various natural sites and waterfalls, um, uh, and an introduction to writing haiku. There are also also optional qigong times. That's not really Christian at all. That is uh, that is Eastern religion dressed up as Christianity. It is perhaps a lovely time, and there's much to be gained from sitting still especially in our modern technological world, sure. But it's hardly deepening and growing in spirituality. It might be a wonderful time of community and a touching time, and people might come away from it going, oh, that was mysterious, that was cosmic. But it's shutting out and silencing the most foundational reality, the most precious jewel of Christianity. That God speaks to us. Not uh, saying one word over again and again, not sitting in silence, not contemplating a waterfall, but he's spoken to us, articulate, tells us who he is, what his plans are, what his will is. It is sub-Christian. It is disappointing. It is hollow. For me to, in a Christian retreat, (laughs) or a Christian cell group or Bible study, to get together and not 
open the word of God, read it, learn it, study it, treasure it. Worship our speaking God by listening and trembling at his words. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we rejoice to know that you, that you are the God who is there and that you are there and not silent. We cannot just rejoice in your existence, but we can rejoice in knowing you. And in your word we meet you, Father, Son and Spirit, and can have a relationship with you, hearing you, trusting you, obeying you, delighting in you, speaking to you in prayer and praise. How wonderful that is. We pray that you help us as we seek to speak about you to our friends and family. But we pray you also shape us in our lives and in our churches to make the hearing of your word, the trembling at your word, a central duty and joy of all that we do together. And we ask for these wonderful things in Jesus' name. Amen.